morning, everyone. I feel like we need to like circle up and just have like a family conversation this morning, um, which feels kind of nice. So yeah. <laughs> I don't I don't know when we would do it, so that's the problem. Yeah. Um, yeah. Good to be with you. Uh, many of us have been reading the book, or maybe just started uh, the book This Here Flesh. Um, in, a, in our seasonal small groups, and if, if you've not picked up that book, I highly uh, recommend that you do so. It's a great read. It's really beautiful um, and transformative, but I was reading this last week in preparation for my own uh, seasonal small group that uh, we're starting up this week, and I began to notice some similarities between kind of the things I was thinking about and she was reminding me of as I was reading with a book that we've previously read, and that is Braiding Sweetgrass. And I was reminded of particularly how transformative it has been for me to connect with creation and therefore to connect with God. I think something happens in our bodies when we connect with creation. The divine not only touches us, but somehow the ingrained perception of a world being full of binaries begins to shift. And we welcome complexity and our perception and our lives become a lot more fluid and they are held by the divine in a way that is sustaining and healing and slower and abundant, attentive, beautiful, and gracing us with an ability to interrogate the ways in which darkness is often demonized or the ways in which modernity manipulates to press its agenda, maintaining oppressive systems and structures that bring us to judge based on what we do rather than our inherent dignity as human beings. I think you'll get a sense of that too as you read this here flesh. But I think we're going to see this divine touch, if you will, in today's text as well. We're going to jump into John chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, and as we've been reading in the First Nations version, that's what we're going to utilize today. Before I get to our text, I would like to remind us of a few pieces of the stories that lead up to this moment in our text. We've got Jesus who, in interrogating the systems and structures of his own day, he has been who he is as God's beloved. He's revealed his true self through being with the people. Sometimes that included some healings, like healing the son of the government official in chapter 4, which we did not discuss, or the man at the Bethesda pool on the Sabbath day in chapter 5, which we also did not cover. He also meets the needs of the people through healings and miracles, but that includes feeding the 5,000, which we did look at with Brittany. He has tapped into his witness, if you will, as logos or the word, who was present at creation as he walked on water, another text we didn't dive into. He has declared his own body a temple among and with the people as the bread that feeds and the water that sustains. All of who he is seems to cause division, or at the very, very least, infuriate those who maintain religious authority and hold power. 
and see themselves as the wisdom keepers. And the tides begin to turn in chapter 7 as Jesus is referred to then as the wisdom keeper. Someone who carries wisdom that is beyond what can be seen with the eyes. And it's a special kind of light that shines in the darkness, if you will. And we arrive at chapter 8. And one thing I want to point out and make clear is that this story was an oral story, and it was preserved through and by early Christians, despite the fact that it would have violated deeply held cultural attitudes and values. And we're going to come back to what I mean by that in a minute. But the fact that the story is even preserved in writing points to how queer the text already is and to how queer those who follow Jesus are by standing with the outsiders and erasing boundaries and noticing God in the margins and in bodies and in many various ways that upset the status quo. I'm going to read for us, as I mentioned from the First Nations Version, I'm going to read chapter 8, verses 1 through 18, and then once I'm done reading it, I'm going to walk us through, as I've done before, making just some observations and asking a lot of questions, because this stirs a lot of questions and wonderings. You're welcome to follow along if you want to grab uh, one of the First Nations Version. If you don't have one, you're welcome to grab that and follow along. But Creator Sets Free, who is Jesus, went to Olive Mountain to find lodging there. Early in the morning at the sunrise, he returned again to the sacred lodge. All the people began to gather around him, so he sat down and once again began to teach and tell his stories. Across the plaza, a cloud of dust was rising from a group of people who were walking toward Creator Sets Free as he was teaching. They were forcefully dragging a woman along with them. He could see her tears and the look of terror on her face. It was the scroll keepers and the separated ones who are the Pharisees. They brought the woman to Creator Sets Free and forced her down on the ground in front of him and all the people. Wisdom keeper, they said. We found this woman in the very act of being unfaithful to her husband. Drawn from the water, who is Moses, instructed us in the law to throw stones at her until she dies. What do you have to say about this? They were putting him to a test so they could have a way to accuse him. The crowd was silent and waited to see what he would say, but he said nothing. He bent over and with his finger wrote something in the dirt. When he did not answer right away, the separated ones became angry and kept questioning him. Creator sets free, looked up at them and said, The one who has done no wrong should be the first to throw a stone at her. He then bent over and again began to write in the dirt with his finger. When they heard his words, they all stood there silently. Then, beginning with the elders... One at a time, they dropped their stones and walked away. Soon all were gone except for Creator Sets Free and the woman. He stood up and looked at her. Honored woman, he said, where are the ones who were accusing you? Is there no one who finds fault with you? 
The woman looked up timidly into his eyes and said, No one, wisdom keeper. Then I also find no fault with you, he said to her. May, you may go on your way, but take care not to return to this broken path you have been walking. After the woman left, the people began to gather around him again, waiting to hear what he would say. Creator sets free, lifted up his voice and said to them, I am the light shining on this dark world. The ones who walk with me will not stumble in darkness, but will have the light that gives them life. When they heard this, the separated ones said to him, When you say these things about yourself, you are the only one who says they are true. If no one else speaks for you, we can, then we cannot receive your words. Creator sets free, answered them. If I am the only one who speaks for myself, my words are still true. I know where I came from and where I am going. You are the ones who do not know where I came from or where I am going. You are deciding about me with weak human minds. I am not deciding about anyone. But even if I did, my decisions would be true, for I do not stand alone. My Father who sent me is the one who stands with me. Your tribal law tells you it takes the word of two people to know the truth. So then, I speak for myself, and the Father speaks for me also. This is the word of the Lord. There's a lot here. Like, we could talk about all that's here for probably an hour and a half at minimum and just be scratching the surface. So I want to make just a few observations this morning and hope that you begin to see this passage in a particular way. First of all, I want to say that the beginning of this scene is quite dramatic. It is sunrise, and they're at the Sacred Lodge. Now, at this time of day, the courts are commencing, and so are daily prayers. This is creating a complex dynamic in the story as people come together at this spot. We might assume that the crowd gathered to hear Jesus actually included some Roman soldiers among those everyday folks that were gathering for prayer and to receive teaching. And as it was the time that the courts commence, we see the scroll keepers and Pharisees arrive with a lot of commotion forcing this woman down to the ground before Jesus, saying that they found her in the very act. To which I have a lot of questions. Beginning with, why the hell were you even there during said very act? What kind of act was it? Where do you go to find such scapegoats? And of course it's a woman. Were they just looking anywhere? Looking for any act that might fit to persecute Jesus under the law and this woman under the law. But maybe more importantly, who is this woman? We don't know. In the traditional culture of the day, the honor of the family was attached to the sexual behavior of women. So much so that a family would kill their own who violated the sexual code.
No matter the relationship, they have brought her to be stoned. Maybe they were taking advantage of the situation, both to be the conduits, if you will, to restore honor to a local family, maybe even one of their own, and to maintain power as the wisdom keepers by getting rid of Jesus. So insecure, they not only are looking for a way to get Jesus arrested, but they decide that they can quote one of their most honored ancestors, who is Moses, in confronting Jesus. We'll just bring Moses into this picture, too. This scene couldn't be any more dramatic, I don't think. And I can imagine that you could cut the tension in the air with a knife that people were breathing very shallowly, that their minds are racing, and that that flight-or-fight response was triggered within their own bodies. And notice Jesus' response. He bent over, and with his finger, he wrote something in the dirt. I'm going to say that again. He bent over, and with his finger, he wrote something in the dirt. Again, more questions. On par with his typical mode of operation, it seems that he is willing to suffer for this woman, but does he even know the woman's name? I don't know. Were all those present, except for Jesus, indifferent to this woman's suffering? Why does he bend over? As he bent down, was it that it put him closer to the woman who had been forced on the ground? It feels at this moment as if time stands still. What did he write? If not to answer their question. He says nothing. Maybe, just maybe, he is responding to the woman's needs. Surely she needs to not stand condemned. She needs to be spared from death. And I wonder if this moment of silence gave her body a taste of rest in the midst of the chaos. I wonder if he wrote something to her. Something more or different than what he responds with verbally. Clearly angering these Pharisees with his actions, maybe he actually answers and addresses and informs her first. Oh, how scandalous but also conveying to the woman a clear sense of I am with you. Let us not gloss over the fact that the one whose actions and words declare being with this woman is also I am, who has his own needs. So we might ask, what does Jesus need? 
Clearly, he needs to interrogate the interrogators. But it seems that he also needed to slow the destructive energy and activity in a way that made space to give way to something deeper and more wise. And he needed time to see beyond what his and the woman's eyes could perceive in that moment. He bent over, and with his finger, he wrote something in the dirt. Notice his need to connect with the land. He returns to the dust. Surely in this moment, he is reminded that God the Father is with him. And then he responds. Verse 7, The one who has done no wrong should be the first to throw a stone. Oh, I love this part. Again, what a response. And quite scandalous, actually. First of all, rather than allowing everyone to just stone her, which would actually render no individual to have to bear responsibility for her death, he calls people out to take responsibility individually. You see, those Roman soldiers were likely there. And Roman law prohibited killing, so they would have been arrested. Second, Anyone who would have chosen to step out and therefore claim to be sinless, which was impossible, would have brought just as much shame to their own families. And then for a second time, he writes in the dirt with his finger. Neither time does the text say say what he writes. And so again, I wonder, did he write to her? We'll never know. But we might presume that this detail is important. Maybe because it indicates his resistance, his creating space for rest and reorienting attention, not on binaries, upheld by the law, but on kindness or being with, which is who he truly is. God with this woman. God with the people. God with us. Maybe turning his attention from everyone else signaled that he took no pleasure in public humiliation but he remained adamant about saving this woman. And in doing so, binaries are erased. In this transitional moment, Jesus' actions themselves declares that he is the light shining on the dark world. And in verse 9, beginning with the elders, they dropped their stones and walked away. Again. More questions. Were the Pharisees the eldest among the people? 
They had stones in their hands, but dropped them. So had they brought their stones with them? I mean, what a heavy burden to carry, right? Both physically and spiritually. Clearly, this is no way to live along Creator's good road. And in this interaction with Jesus, they feel it. In seeking to accuse Jesus, the situation gets reversed, and now they stand accused. And finally, it's just Jesus and the woman who are left. And he addresses her as honored woman, clearly stating, look, where did they all go? Is there no one who finds fault? with you. And confirming that indeed no one is there, I wonder what she felt in her own body. And I imagine an overwhelming sense of relief being put to ease as Jesus stands with her. Interestingly, he is still there. What is intriguing about this is that on the one hand, while others would kill even their own who violate the sexual code and therefore hold power over others' bodies, Jesus doesn't claim any power over her body, but frees her to go on her way. And on the other hand, his presence could be read as him being the only judge. And rather than condemnation, she receives Jesus' words, Then I also find no fault with you. You may go on your way, but take care not to return to the broken path you have been walking. I imagine the broken path was more than just whatever indiscretions might have been counted against her, but extended to trust in Creator's good road. These words remind me of Jesus' words in John 3, 16 through 21, and I want to read them again for us this morning out of the First Nations version because they are familiar to us, but they come across a lot differently here. The Great Spirit loves this world of human beings so deeply he gave us his Son, the only Son who fully represents him. All who trust in him and his ways will not come to a bad end, but will have the life of the world to come that never fades away, full of beauty and harmony. Creator did not send his Son to decide against the people of this world, but to set them free from the worthless ways of the world. The ones who trust in him are released from their guilt. But for the ones who turn away from him to follow the ways of this world, their guilt remains. This is because they are turning away from the life of beauty and harmony the great spirit offers through his son. This is what decides for or against them. My light has shined into this dark world, but because of their worthless ways, people love the dark path more than the light. When they chose the dark path, they do not want others to see. So they hide in the darkness and hate the light. But the ones who are true and do what is right are walking in the daylight, so others can clearly see they are walking with.
creator. Those who then return to hear what Jesus will say, hear him again share a discourse on him being the light. And I want to pause to acknowledge that the light-dark metaphor has been twisted to demonize dark and darkness. Because yes, modernity manipulates the metaphor to press its own agenda, to maintain oppressive systems and structures that bring us to judge based on what we do or what can be produced rather than our inherent dignity as human beings. All that to say, I hope that over the years we have come to understand both dark and light as valuable and life-sustaining. Even in the Jewish tradition, the dark or the sunset marks the beginning of the next day and therefore is what gives way to life. I could go on, but what I believe is intended here is actually very basic. Literally and practically speaking, it can be hard to find our way in the dark. I've walked many a dirt paths in remote areas lit only by moonlight. Even had a horse come charging down the path at us once. That was interesting. <clears throat> and I've stumbled around in the darkness of unfamiliar places. I'm sure you have too. I think we can all relate. If not physically, we can spiritually. The point is this. All who trust in the great love that God has given and follow the ways of love will have life. In this story, the people's decisions about Jesus are weak. They want strict application of the law, and Jesus fights for compassion. He fights for justice. Ultimately, they just don't trust him. But again, Jesus is not making judgments. He says, I am not deciding about anyone. And while the law says that it takes the word of two people to know the truth, he declares that he and the Father speak, and that equals the truth. So even if he were to decide about anyone, it would be true. But more importantly, the truth that he shares is that he is the light. Jesus knows where he came from, and he knows where he's going. Life constructed solely of binaries is not his home, nor is it the good road. And Jesus knows the path because he is the light. He is the one who illuminates the good road. He trusts the divine in his own self, standing with the outsiders, erasing boundaries, and engaging with God in the margins and in bodies and in countless ways that upset the status quo. Friends, this story is shared because shame and death do not have the final word. Like Jesus and the woman, we are invited to trust the light and to follow the good road illuminated. To trust what our bodies know about the divine to stand with the outsiders, to connect with Creator in such a way that we might be attentive, held by the divine, sustained 
experience healing and abundance. Slow down and experience the life of beauty and harmony that the Spirit offers us today. May it be so.